Hello, I'm Consuelo Mack. On this week's Wealth Track podcast, Making It on Wall Street, career advice from three influential women tearing down the pink wall. Causeway Capital Sarah Ketterer, Capital Group's Karen Choi, and Canyon Partners Robin Potts share their professional journeys and advice on Wealth Track. Hello, and welcome to this Wealth Track podcast. I'm Consuelo Mack. Investing is one of the most competitive, challenging, and high-stakes specialties in finance. Making it on Wall Street is even more daunting for women, who make up less than 12% of portfolio managers and senior private equity executives. Our three panelists are members of this select group and join us to share their professional journeys and career advice. Sarah Ketterer is CEO and co-founder of global value firm Causeway Capital and portfolio manager of its flagship Causeway International Value Fund, a winner of Morningstar's prestigious International Stock Fund Manager of the Year Award. Karen Choi is a fixed income manager at the highly regarded Capital Group, where she specializes in investment-grade corporate bond portfolios. Robin Potts is co-head real estate investments and director of acquisitions at Canyon Partners Real Estate the real estate arm of global alternative asset manager, Canyon Partners. They recently joined me for a Tearing Down the Pink Wall Influential Women in Finance event hosted by the UCLA Fink Center of Finance at the Anderson School of Business, UC Berkeley's Haas School of Business, and the financial literacy organization WISE, Women Investing in Security and Education. In part one of our discussion, they shared their analysis of the markets and their investment strategies. You can find that conversation on Wealthtrack.com. Today in part two, our focus is their journeys to success and advice for the rest of us. I started the conversation with their beginnings. How important was their education to their advance? First up, Causeway's Ketterer with a BA in economics and political science from Stanford and an MBA from Dartmouth's Tuck School. Those degrees in particular, the combination of those, extremely important to where I am today. But I, I to give you a big caveat, I, we've hired many talented research analysts in, in our firm. Again, we manage equities only, and they're not particularly interested in getting a graduate degree, and they're doing just fine. So it really depends. I came out of college and launched into the world of corporate finance, taking companies public and doing some quick valuation work, but a lot of a lot of drudge stuff, like preparing a prospectus, the document that allows investors to know what, what it is they're buying if they ever even read it. Uh, and lots of tire kicking, really understanding the companies and making sure that the accountants were satisfied. Anyway, I did that for a couple of years and I really still hadn't learned anything particularly useful. I mean, I could have gone on to be an investment banker. No, I don't think it's a particularly salutary career for women or anyone, frankly. I, I know more broken homes out of that industry than any other. Investment bank used to be the place that everybody yeah. and every MBA yeah. wanted to go. And you're saying, forget about it. Yes. Well, I went there too. Even after grad school, yeah. I went there. I just found the hours ridiculous. And the key is you've got to keep learning. When you're in your 20s, you've got to keep learning all the time. And if you're not, if you've stagnated and there's no opportunity to, to be learning more leave employers are we are hungry for people so you can go anywhere you like if if until we are in recession so i would do it now 
that's a great opportunity to keep learning. Yeah. I thought education was really important. It wasn't just what I learned as the people I met, the networking, the connections. For both undergrad class. and MBA in yes. business school? Yes. Okay, both. both. Okay. But particularly grad school. Um, and I needed to talk, running an, an asset management firm, we're not very big, uh, but compared to the Leviathans out there, like a capital group, but we share some of the same problems. And I have had former classmates who've been the CEOs for periods of time of other significant asset managers, some of them publicly listed. And they've been invaluable sources of advice for me. Mm-hmm. And I've tried to reciprocate. It's a big opportunity cost to go to grad school. You're missing out on, on earnings. And it's obviously quite expensive, but I thought it was well worth it. Well, our other two panelists chose not to go to grad school. So, Karen, let me ask BA in International Relations at Wellesley at one of the Seven Sisters. It's an all-women's school. How important was your uh, education in your career choice and trajectory? Um, Not as important. (laughs) It's different for every individual person. Being a Korean American, the only jobs that my parents ever thought they would want me in is be, the, the legal field or being a doctor or a, a lawyer, doctor I, I or lawyer. exactly right. okay. that's it okay. I, and I at one point <laughs> I aspired to be um in the communications business because I didn't really see many Asians and there was Connie Chung back then and so there were not that many Asian female and you know a lot of these professions at that time so that was kind of my third choice so for me it was really taking the opportunities that presented themselves over the years and so the advice that I would give young women is that you know I think Sarah hit one on the head was relationships relationships actually Mm -hmm. matter and one of the things that I see all the time is that women pull back and they don't build the relationships over time because you just don't know how someone can help you over the long run. And I would say my husband is excellent at that. And so I learned a lot from my husband and what he does. Remember, build relationships over your career because you just never know where you'll end up and who can help you or who you can actually help also. For me, the MBA didn't matter either because I already had my MRS. So it wasn't like I needed to go get my MBA. So it wasn't as important. For investment management, I think if you don't have your MBA, it is very much encouraged for people to get their CFA. So I do have my CFA. Chartered financial analyst, right. Yes. And so I would say if you do decide not to go to get your MBA, I would get your CFA because I think that is very helpful. And a lot of investment management firms will actually you know, see them equivalent to each other and getting your CFA is a lot, lot cheaper. So Robin, uh, BA in economics, um, not getting your MBA, how important was your major and your education, your undergraduate education and the decision not to get an MBA to your career? My undergraduate major was was in economics Mm -hmm. and Overall, my undergraduate education was incredibly important in terms of the relationships that I formed there and also being school that had great recruiting access. And so I was able to go from undergrad into investment banking directly because of the recruiting resources on campus. At Harvard. Exactly. Because of going into investment banking and the relationships that that I was able to create there and the training that investment banking provides, and then kind of the launch pad to be able to access jobs from there, I ultimately determined that I was on the trajectory and had the network that I was looking for to be able to just continue on in my career versus going back to school for the MBA. But um, certainly I know many, many friends and colleagues in the industry who have had a tremendous experience. I don't think there's necessarily 
a right or wrong answer. It just depends. If you're looking to course correct and get access to a different set of job opportunities, MBAs are fantastic for that. But if you're already at a place you want to be and think there's enough opportunities where you are, then you know that's that's really how I felt and and how I continued on. The three of you went to very prestigious schools, undergrad. How important was that? And the three of you are in positions where you're hiring people as well. What difference does it make in this day and age if you go to a prestigious uh, university or college? Sarah, do you want to start? Because you are running a firm. It's employee owned. How important is that Ivy League degree? Well, I'll give you a story. One of the fastest rising partners at Causeway, because 30 individuals own our firm, and we started with many fewer. And over time, as as the talent has risen, we've awarded more equity to those people. And we have a couple of superstars who came in and just after, I'd say, a learning period, just went up sharply in terms of career progression. And one of them is a colleague named Fusheng. He's now uh, running our China business. He got his um, undergraduate degree in China in like pharmacology. And then he went on to get his MD in China. And then he came to the U.S. and uh, he contacted one of our colleagues and said, I'd like to be an healthcare um, equity analyst. Go get your MBA. That was how we deferred him. And uh, he did. But he went to Duke at the Fuqua School. We hadn't hired anybody from Duke before. There's nothing wrong with it. And we just hadn't had anybody apply. He sort of reminded us, it doesn't really matter where you go as long as you're really good. I think he graduated at the top of his class. He's incredibly intelligent. And his being bilingual, he's able to do for us what so few can. But his medical knowledge made him an excellent equity analyst. Did a lot of self-teaching. And I think it, that sort of would be my advice. I'm not sure it really does matter where you go to school as long as you make the most of it. And it's very impressive for an employer to interview somebody who's outstanding. So he or she went wherever they went and they did really well. Just showing that aptitude and that drive in, in college or university is, is impressive. Karen, I, I want to ask you because I too went to an all-women's college. It, it made a huge difference in my self-confidence. How much does it matter at Capital Group, for instance, or when you're looking at candidates, where they went undergrad? Or I would say today, going to the right school is not as important. It's not something we focus on as much. In fact, we're actually looking beyond the target schools that we used to go to. And as a mother of kids who are applying to college in the next few years too, it is like really difficult now. It's, it's random too, in terms of what school kids get into. At the end of the day, I think if you're smart, you're gonna be smart regardless of where you are. If you're gonna be a good investor, you're going to be a good investor. And to be a great investor, there might be a couple of things that are, that might be different. There are other attributes that I think are probably necessary to have Such and that's as. being creative, thinking outside the box. I think that has really helped me uh, with my investment decisions, being able to have a different view from the market and holding steady to that, even though when it feels really bad for a very long time. Robin, same question to you. When I entered the workforce, it was of greater importance in terms of opening doors where you went to school. Today, I think there's a much broader perspective in terms of accessing talent. Um, in particular, there's a tremendous emphasis within finance of, of accessing diverse talent. And there's a lot of discussion industry-wide about 
being able to go through different channels and create those relationships in different ways for hiring. So I think it's fantastic time to be, you know, a woman in the industry and looking for that, that next job. And you don't necessarily need to have the perfect traditional background to, to get a foot in the door. So that is a question that I want to ask each of you as well is what difference has it made being a woman to your career success or to your career period? Robin, do you want to start with that? Sure. The commercial real estate industry is an extremely male-dominated industry. And because it's within the private markets, I think the um, barriers to entry for females are they're harder to break down because they're privately owned assets and just all direct intermediaries in terms of how you create relationships. And it's definitely been an interesting experience being in uh, the commercial real estate industry. And I think it's gotten significantly better over time, but that relationship and networking aspect of real estate in terms of how you secure opportunities and source deals is a real factor that, that women have to contend with. But I would say that it's worth investing the time and finding your groove to be able to do that within commercial real estate because it's such a creative industry where you can, you know, touch and feel the asset in which you're investing. You can make investments within cities and communities that really change the landscape or make an investment and bet on the path of growth. And I do think overall the industry is is really embracing diversity in a different way uh, now than it has historically. How did you break through? How did you break into the industry? I started in investment banking. I was in the financial institutions group covering mortgage REITs. And through that experience, got some exposure to direct real estate investors. And so I specifically looked post-investment banking to join real estate private equity. And being located in LA, Canyon was was at the top of my list in terms of firms to join. Uh, So I started as an analyst at Canyon and ultimately over many years was promoted and had the opportunity to continue to to grow uh, in my role here, uh, which is a little bit unusual to stay at the same firm for such a long time. But I had tremendous mentors every step of the way to help me form the relationships that I needed. And that mentorship element of, of being able to be successful in the business, I think was, was really critical to my success. Male-dominated industry, male mentors primarily? Primarily, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Sarah, what difference has it made being a woman I mean to your career success? I'm convinced it's made a big difference. We all tend to want to find people when we hire them that are kind of like us. It's a human tendency. In fact, we do have a lot of training to keep the men from doing that. Uh, <laughs> That's I'm that making a joke true, out of it. Sarah, yeah. <laughs> but um, jokes aside, I, I think the women that we hire know that we care about women. Uh-huh. because our CEO is female. And our COO, our chief operating officer, who's been with us since inception, is also female until we added a few people to our board. And we were predominantly a female-run organization. And that made it safer and maybe more inviting for other women to join us. So that, I know, was useful from a, a talent perspective. And clients appreciate it. And it's so true. They really are looking for diverse managers. And um, over time, I've diluted my equity stake to get into the hands of younger colleagues. I can see just urgent need by clients, particularly big public funds and their pension plans. They want to have managers across the, the whole spectrum of, of different races, different genders. They, they can't have all white males or there'll be 
political difficulty for them. They've gone out of their way. And I, I just think that's something that all women should know that they're really welcome in this industry. But how did you you get there? Yeah. Uh, when it was a male-dominated industry, and it still is, of course. I'm from another era, but all the doors were closed in my face in investment banking, and I had to force myself to open them. Like, like what the, did you do? Well, the closed door means you're not wanted in this meeting, but if you don't go in the door, you won't learn anything, and you'll end up doing all the shitty work instead of what you want to do, which is the more advanced work. It's like my 100-pound hand reached for the door, and I would turn it and then open it, and then it was just awful, all eyes, you know, staring. Uh, yes. Well, then all the mentors end up being men, of course, but they were wonderful. And I just had to get more confidence. That was the one thing I lacked. Like I had the curiosity and the intelligence and the drive. I just, I didn't have enough confidence and it just took years. And that's why, you know, we sort of launched our firm when we did. Uh, my business partner and I were just at the point where we both, and in my case as a woman, I just had that level of confidence that was just got to the level where I was ready to go. Cause it's quite an adventure when you're on your own. They call that yeah. cash, cash burn. <laughs> <laughs> Karen, what difference has being a woman made, do you think, uh, in your career? I would say it's made a tremendous difference, right? And it's been good and bad. The other part for me is that I am Asian, I am Korean American. So when I walk into the room, it's not unusual that I'm the only female and I'm the only minority. It's tough too. And I would say for me, how do I deal with it? It's just really enduring and also finding commonality with people, right? So I did have to read a little bit more about sports <laughs> to have a conversation about someone about golf or, or, or football, because I just felt like that was the interest. I do less yeah, of do that. Do your now. homework. Okay. Yeah, I, yep. I had, I had to do a lot of that in the beginning. And the other thing is like, it wasn't unusual when people thought I was the person who was, I was the analyst and not the senior person in the room. So that happened quite a bit. Like, Hey, can you grab me a cup of coffee? I'm like, mm, <laughs> not, not quite. I'll ask someone else to get you your coffee. But now um, I would say I speak up, I, I go in a room and I'm literally the only female. And I'll say to the CEO, I said, what's going on here? You got to change this. This is ridiculous. <laughs> right. And so I think it's important for women to speak up. And I think the confidence issue is real. And there's even a book, uh, the confidence code about it. I want to give this example. My husband's amazing. And, and I learn from him all the time, but it's pretty incredible when I watch him in his meetings or I watch what he does, because there's no way I would say the things that he does or do the things he would say. He would tell you he's an expert in teaching girls what it means to be a girl because he has four girls. He would tell me he's an expert at breastfeeding because he's seen me breastfeed four girls. I'm like, you know, it's not quite the same, <laughs> right? Whereas I would never say I'm an, I'm an expert at any of that. He has really taught me that I need to be much more competent and I need to speak up more. So what I do now is sometimes when I go into a room or when I have an issue that comes up, I said, what would Sam do? What would my husband do? And he would not back down. He would speak up. He would ask for every penny that he's worth. And more. So that's what I do to kind of get over my own internal imposter syndrome or fears, et cetera. Uh, and I think I, I would encourage all you women out there to do the same. You guys are all incredible and you're probably under your selling yourselves, even in your interviews. So stand out by just being more confident and like believe in yourself because I believe in all of you. Robin? 
I agree on, on the confidence gap issue. It took it took a very long time for me to be comfortable speaking up in, in group situations. Similar to what Karen describes, I can't even count the number of meetings where I'm the only female in the room. And I have historically felt an obligation to know 100% of the facts before I would put myself out there because uh, it felt too risky to essentially BS my way through something right. like a male colleague might do and get away with, I might not be able to get away with that. You know, as a result, that kind of overcompensation in some ways helped me advance in the way that that I have in the organization because uh, I just felt an intense pressure to basically be at the top of my game at all times as one of the only females in 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 the room in many situations. But certainly, you know, over the years, I, women, every, everyone on, on this particular call can feel confident in asserting themselves much earlier than when they have 100% of the facts. And uh, your male colleagues are doing that all the time. <laughs> yeah, we, we used to call it the bluff. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Men are much better at bluffing, uh, it seems. Gross generality, but uh, certainly if you've been in a classroom with guys, they seem to raise their hands faster. And even if they don't necessarily know the answer, um, biggest success in your career, was there a major turning point, Robin, that you would point to that you could share with us? I started uh, within the originations and acquisitions team. So sourcing and closing new deals and being what I would call a deal junkie. I just, you know, love the hunt, love the transaction uh, activity and the negotiations and twists and turn of, of any deal to capture a great opportunity. That element to me was so exciting and so fun. But at some point, essentially, once you get to a certain point in your career, you stop being the kind of doer and producer of that type of business on an individual basis. And you need to switch to be a leader of people and a manager of people and helping steer toward a common goal. That was a very, very hard transition for me personally. And I'm really proud of my growth in that area, but would encourage, you know, everybody on the phone, once they get an opportunity to manage people, to really, really push yourself to explore yourself as a manager and the best way to lead. Cause ultimately it's, you know, as you continue advancing in your career, it's, it's just, it's a people business. And Sarah, what, what was one of your biggest successes in your career that accelerated uh, your professional status or your self-confidence? We wouldn't have been able to start Causeway when we did 20 years ago if we hadn't been reasonably successful. And, and I think it, when I thought personally, I'd really understood the asset management industry and I had a pretty good grip on non-U.S. markets because we started off as an international equity manager. Uh, it was after I decided that I needed to know what was happening 24 hours in the markets. Now that does sound crazy, but uh, I did a lot of traveling and I would sit on trade desks all over the world and talk to these traders and try to understand. I figured they were trying to cheat me, but I just didn't know how. So the more I talked to them, the more I understood sort of how they think about the world. And this was, again, a little bit, there's, we're much more automated today, but, but it was fascinating to put myself in the shoes of the people I'd be doing business with and not to mention spending a lot of time with companies based all over the world and, and then been able to synthesize all that. It took me really till the very, probably around the year, you know, 2000 or so, um, just at the time when the TMT bubble was beginning to, to deflate 
that I, I thought it kind of come together. It just comes from effort and being curious and then sort of just wanting and having this insatiable desire to learn more. And that's partly what I look for when we interview is that's those same sort of characteristics, preferably in a female. <laughs> right. So talk about thinking, you know, outside of the box, Karen, which you mentioned, what's been one of your uh, most successful career moments? It's probably a little bit over a decade ago. I got invited to um, be part of an industry group that gives feedback and really gives updates to the CEOs in the industry. And so I thought that was for me, like a turning point, like, wow, people respect my opinion and actually want to know what (laughs) I'm thinking or what what my view is on the market, what my view is on their strategy, et cetera. So I thought that was for me a turning point. And the uh, the other turning point was becoming a full-time portfolio manager, depending on, on which stats, it's anywhere between 11 11 to 14% of all portfolio managers are female. That's a pretty low number. It is. So really I'm pushing for more representation there for more people to raise their hand to become a portfolio manager. Cause a lot of women just don't raise their hand. Um, they're afraid of the job or they're afraid of becoming a portfolio manager, but it's really not that much harder. It's, it's just different. So I encourage women to not be scared to take those risks. Both you and, and Sarah were, were analysts at one point. So was the analyst foundation really important to becoming a portfolio manager? Was that kind of an essential foundation? For me, it was very important because yeah. it really helped me have built like a foundation and just kind of just really setting it up for me on how to think about investing overall. So I thought it was really important for me, but not everyone comes into that portfolio management job with analyst experience. It really depends on the individuals. And, you know, switching we, from successes to the biggest setback. So Karen, what has been the biggest professional setback that you've had and, and how did so you many. overcome it? <laughs> I would say, I mean, the biggest ones is are when you don't get the same opportunities that you think you should get as other people. That happened over time and over many years, multiple times. And, and, and that's for me has been, you know, another turning point where I, I decide to raise my hand, speak up and say, why am I not getting this opportunity? And nine out of 10 times it was, we don't know. There was no really good reason. And so I would finally get that opportunity. And it really was because I wasn't speaking up as much as I could to show interest in a particular role. Wait, how important it is. Sarah was saying 100 pounds opening the door is not to be afraid to ask for what you want, or at least to say, look, I'm interested. That's taken some time for you to get to that point. Yes, because I, I grew up in an Asian household where you kind of just didn't say much <laughs> to your elders. You respected them and you, you thought they made the de- best decisions all the time and you just took it. Right. And uh, I realized that's not the case. <laughs> Sarah, uh, biggest setback, career setback for you and, and how you overcame it, if, if you did and yeah. what you learned from it? Well, mine was entirely self-induced. And in order to make that transition from analyst to portfolio manager, that was okay because portfolio managers at Causeway are also analysts. But it's portfolio manager and then being a real CEO as opposed to, you know, the organization was so small, you know, this, our COO did all the administrative stuff, but there's so much people management involved in my job. Mm-hmm. And I made some huge errors. I had to actually go and actually study human psychology. I had to read and think about it and understand what all the biases were that I had, not to mention the people that I was mismanaging and you know how to run a meeting, get back to the, the basics that I ended up with hiring someone that only one person in my organization really wanted. He happened to be incredibly important. 
but I count down to one, alienated the rest, and it turned out it was a bad hire. It was a cultural misfit. And I lost the confidence of my colleagues doing that. It took me a while to regain it. It was just such an obvious misstep. I still kind of beat myself up today. It's so important to get some level of consensus and buy-in, get people involved in a decision, get them to take a stake in it, make it their decision. And I had to learn that the hard way. How did you rectify that? We you- fired him. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we got rid of them, but, and that was awful. I had to do all that. I tried to clean up my own mess and it was expensive. You know, we had to pay him. Uh, and I took me, I would say a couple of years after that, this was a long time ago to, to kind of reestablish my own credibility as a true team member, leader, and manager. And did you actually, you know, kind of have a confession to your employees? How did yeah, you well, the communication was the, the employees termination of them. I mean, I've never heard people whoop down the hall like they did when that guy was <laughs> leaving. <laughs> Robin, so biggest professional setback for you? I similar to what what Sarah just described. I've had to learn a lot of management lessons real time affecting other people's careers and our team. And one of the things that that I've really taken away from doing this now for, for a while is essentially, I came into the manager role, I would say, being more of a conflict avoider from that perspective in terms of if you had an issue with a team member or they were having an issue with a colleague, for example, you know, hoping that it would work out and resolve itself and be okay over time. What I've learned just time and time again is essentially you need to address those things as soon as they happen, uh, hit the conflict head on. Otherwise you're creating toxicity among, among the team. So I've had to learn some hard lessons that way as well. And there's no alternative to having some of those experiences play out on, on your watch as a manager and then figuring out how to grow from there. Why do each of you think you've been as successful as you have been? What have you done more than your peers or differently from your peers or your competitors? How do you explain your success? And uh, Sarah, I'll start with you. If I knew what it was, if there was some sort of formula, I would probably try to multiply it many times over. Keeping great people within an organization requires trusting them and acknowledging them and making sure that they know they're valued. And of course, I screwed that up initially too, but I finally figured that out. And when it really mattered, and I mentioned earlier, having 29 other partners, these people know they're valued. They may not have a large stake, but they see others who who are perhaps a few years ahead of them who have larger stakes in the organization. And they see it's a real meritocracy that individuals are rewarded based on the contributions they make. And there's no, no politics, no favoritism. That to me is absolutely critical. And I think that's in part what makes the culture so strong and so collaborative. And what kinds of contributions, when I think of a money management firm, I'm thinking great investment idea, or you outperform your benchmark or whatever. What kind of contributions are you talking about in your depends culture? Depends on the role. I mean, for, okay. the inv- for investment staff, and it depends, again, if you're an analyst and we have a two to four year program, and then some get promoted to senior analyst and others move on and do something else or go to graduate school. And then for senior analysts, there's an actual formula. They demanded it. So we can let them have it. Uh, so they know in terms of weightings, idea generation, and then the accuracy of their models and, and their collaborative effort and so on. I'm not giving you exactly the sort of secret sauce, but then in each one of those things is weighted and it helps them understand for their bonus what it's going to look like. Obviously, they'll be part of however the firm is doing as well. 
And then for portfolio managers, it's based on their performance, rolling three-year performance attribution of the stocks that they cover. And so they're next on the block all the time. Uh, they, they, have, they make the final decision on a buy or sell. Um, it can only be overridden by the other most senior person, the president of Causeway or me. And we do it very infrequently because it's mm -hmm. demotivating. So people know it's really clear what it is they're measured on. And then there's the, uh, the additional part. I can't even describe this. Of course, everybody needs to get involved in, with clients. Even you know our traders meet clients. Everybody meets clients. And they used to come through the office pre-COVID. That was kind of an exciting thing to show them around. But we need a, a level of collaboration and mentoring and people involved in recruiting. There's just a myriad of different roles that everybody, all or you call it different hats, people have to wear in order to be a true contributor to the overall organization. And we measure all of that. Karen, how do you explain your success? And what do you see yourself doing differently or more of maybe than your peers or competitors do? As an investor, um, there are a couple of things that I really focused on over the years, and that's relationships, having really long-term relationships with management teams, having actually really long relationships with people who end up being CEOs, CFOs of companies, right? And so really understanding how they think that there's a bit of psychology in that too. And I have relationships, long-term relationships with regulators that I still keep in contact with. So it's having these long-term relationships that I think have been really beneficial. The other part of it is really understanding what in information is important. Some people think that just having a lot of information and knowing a lot of information is key to being a good investor. But I think it's really about figuring out what the right information is and how the market is going to react to it is more important than just the volume of information that you should know. So I think those are kind of where I think uh, I have some key strengths versus my competitors. And Robin, same question to you. What do you, what do you see yourself uh, or have you seen yourself doing differently? How do you explain your professional success? Beyond a lot of really talented people that I work with, I think I've just consistently had a very high sense of urgency across the board consistently over many, many years. And so uh, just being known as someone who will get things done and do it well and basically take everything very seriously and with a high degree of quality. Building that re reputation over time and, and being someone that people can count on is, ends up being really meaningful. If you could only give one piece of career advice uh, to our audience, what would it be? Sarah? Well, I want to pack a lot into the one piece, which is, and we've said some of this already, but be confident. Read everything, get your hands on, because you it to be great in equities, you have to be knowledgeable sort of in an omniscient way. <laughs> like you have to read everything, know everything, darned enough hours in the day, and then being just insatiably curious. That helps you um, in the desire to learn more. This is a very competitive industry. And those who are more driven, and it's also becoming a very technology-focused industry because a lot of what we need to do is absorb data that is not um, typical. We call alternative data mm -hmm. and then make something of it. But those people who are really focused on that and then find that satisfying are going to thrive. Karen, what's, what's the one piece of career advice? If you could only give one to our audience, what would it be? Don't limit yourself because I, I, women tend to limit themselves and they don't realize a lot of times there'll be moments where you want to step back from your career, but I would say just lean into it. You could be more successful than your husband, your spouse, your partner. And um, what I see most of is women leaving at the height of their career 
and then wanting to come back later, it's hard to get back to the same place. And your husband may not be as successful as you. And so why limit yourself? Robin. I would say to, to make sure that you're in a role where you can see a high volume of transaction activity or opportunities so that you can just be learning as wide of a funnel of information as possible. As you, you know, progress in your career, you may need to be more targeted and be more narrow, but early on in your career, the best thing that you can do to position yourself for success is to drink from a fire hose. And so make sure you're in a seat that enables you to do that. For more interviews with financial thought leaders and great investor guests, go to wealthtrack.com and please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. In the meantime, make the week ahead a healthy, profitable, and productive one.